quick. I found out that uh, my battery on my mic was not working, so I had to go get new batteries. All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Mark chapter 10. We're continuing to go through the Gospel of Mark. Today, I, we have the Lord's table, so I will be stopping, stopping short of the conclusion of the message today, so I'm going to kind of leave you hanging today, so you have to be back next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your tremendous grace that you bestow upon your children. Thank you, Lord, you give us the authority to be called children of God for the first time we can actually call our Father in heaven, Father, because of Christ, because he made a new and living way into your presence by his blood. And so, Lord, we appreciate that. We thank you, Lord, you've given us the word of God so we can know your will. We can know what you want. We can know what you've done. And I pray, Lord, as you transform our minds with the word of God, you would make us serious disciples. Disciples, Lord, who know what they believe and know what they're to do. They can articulate the gospel and they can also live the gospel. And I pray that you would make every one of us those kind of people. And do it, Lord, for the glory of your name so Christ can be lifted up and the message of the gospel can go out with power. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. So we're in chapter 10, and if you notice, the title of the message is Truths, The Truths of Serious Discipleship. Um, this would be the third message on this, and underneath that is marriage and divorce, what the Bible says about that. So I'm going to be spending several weeks on that to flesh that out. But the past times we have met together in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been teaching his disciples concerning the serious nature of discipleship, that Jesus has been dispelling uh, the current false notions of what the Son of Man would come to accomplish when he came to the earth the first time. Even Jesus' closest disciples had a, a difficult time grasping the necessity of the Messiah, when he came, should suffer death before anything else could take place. So it is paramount that those who follow Christ take it seriously and grasp the truth surrounding real discipleship. The, the five important truths about serious discipleship, what it looks like, and I've put forth so far four and five of them, um, the first one being listening to Jesus and understanding the will of God is paramount. Secondly, that self-sacrificing service to others is the greatest pursuit in this world. Thirdly, that discernment and restraint are necessary when judging who are Christ's real disciples and who are not. And then fourthly, sin is to be taken seriously and is to be defeated at all costs. Under that one, the admonition was right now 
every precaution needs to be made to cut off everything in our lives that leads us to sin or leads someone else to sin and get rid of it. And then the last one we looked at were the dynamics of discipleship. Serious disciples spread their influence. And let's look at verse 40, uh, chapter 9, verse 49 and 50. It says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves or among yourselves and be at peace with one another. So that's where we ended last time. So Jesus announces that our ability to preserve the world is in order that it may see Christ in us. And this depends on us being different. Serious disciples are different people. They are holy people. And God has placed his children in the world to make a difference and to be different in order to purify, to preserve, to flavor, and then to seek peace. And that peace is really sought in the world by preaching the gospel of peace. So the point being that disputing about status and causing other believers to stumble and not taking sin seriously do not set the groundwork for the purity, the preservations, the, fla- the flavor, and the peaceful fellowship that should be characterized by Christ's disciples. And that's where we left off last time. But I believe that whole uh, analogy or picture of being salt of the earth carries into our next sec- section. So today I'm, I'm actually adding the next issue to the list of serious discipleship, uh, how it should look. And because it is about the important subject of marriage and divorce, that's a huge subject even today. It's a subject still talked about, still debated today, and it always probably will be. How Christ's disciples understand the institution of marriage and then how they conduct themselves in their marriages is part of being the salt of the earth. Most people have some kind of awareness that our culture has been radically changed in regard to the institution of marriage. You should agree with that. Dr. Albert Moeller, in his recent book, We Cannot Be Silent, discerningly said, we are now witnesses to a revolution that is sweeping away a sexual morality and a definition of marriage that has existed for thousands of years. This is the morality and understanding of marriage that has been central to societies shaped by the biblical witness and the influence of both Judaism and Christianity. It is also important to note, he said, that throughout human history, in virtually all civilizations, marriage has been understood as the union of a man and a woman. That has changed, has it not? Redefining marriage has taken much ground in our society, and it has come up upon us quicker than we have ever expected. 
Moeller also said, when marriage is redefined, an, eti- an entire universe of laws, custom, rules, and expectations change as well. Words such as husband and wife, mother and father, at one time common vocabulary, everybody knew what it meant in the society, are now battlegrounds for moral conflict. With the arrival of birth control, no-fault divorce in the early 1970s, which really set the groundwork for the development of the homosexual movement, the normalization of the same-sex relationships, which led to the legalization of same-sex marriage, and recently, to further confuse things, the redefinition of sex and gender, which has sparked the transgender revolution with no end in sight. In fact, this week, I heard in the news that a family in New York City had a going, coming out party for a five-year-old. As if a five-year-old knows the difference between anything. <laughs> this is where the world's going. So then, what will marriage mean when virtually anyone has the right to marry? When virtually anyone has, to, has, has the right to redefine marriage however they would like and marry whomever they want or whatever thing they want? Well, we are witnessing right before our eyes that is marriage as a privileged and respected institution is disappearing right before our eyes. Marriage will never be the same. Now, where do we come in on that? Well, biblical Christians cannot cannot at all whatsoever sit by and let the waves of an evil and perverse generation wash over us and sweep us away and cause us to be just like everyone else. We have the word of God that gives us the correct understanding of sex, of gender, of marriage, and morality. In other words, the Bible will establish the framework for a clear understanding of marriage, its identity, and sexuality itself. And the church must seize the opportunity to be a courageous Christian witness to the gospel and to the biblical pattern of what a good and godly marriage should be between one man and one woman. Now, that brings me to our passage. Mark chapter 10, look at verse 1. Here's like the logistical background. Getting up, he... That's Jesus, went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once uh, once more began to teach them. Now, verse number one, at a quick glance, you may have missed geographically what is going on here. See, Jesus was just in Galilee, and we find him and his disciples heading to the region of Judea. And that's significant. Why is that? Because it is the end. The end of Jesus' ministry is drawing near. 
So him and his disciples were heading south towards Jerusalem. Now, that's about a 100-mile trek on foot. So he had plenty of time as he was walking with his disciples to teach them along the way. But when he got to a certain place, the, the crowds already knew of Jesus Christ. And so they, wherever he was, they gathered, and that's what's going on here. He's also heading into enemy territory. And once his enemies knew he was in the area, they were already coming against him. Of course, they did not come to listen to Jesus' teaching. They came to ask him a hard question in order to trip him up. They came to tempt him with a question. Now, what is the question? Well, look what it says in verse number 2. The question, of course, is on divorce. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. So the Pharisees were not asking the question to be taught or to learn the truth and the correct answer to the question. This, of course, is clear from our text that they were coming to test Jesus, in other words, to tempt him in order to entrap him, to try to find him guilty of breaking one of their laws so they can condemn him. That was their motive. And that was their motive all the way up until he was crucified. They were trying to get anything they could on him to condemn him. And so, of course, they asked the question and what Jesus usually does is ask a question against their question. But the question's pretty simple. Look at the question in verse number three. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? So what does Jesus do? He takes them back to scripture, all right, specifically to the book of Deuteronomy and what Moses said on the subject. And what was the Pharisees' reply in verse number four? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, to understand that question and the answer, we have to get some background. Now, I want to say at the beginning of this that I'm going to come back to this particular passage of Scripture again at the end next week. But today, I just want you to kind of get in your mind some of the things that were being said about and believe during that time about the whole issue of divorce. Now, so the question uh, needs some background. And to get some background for the, from, for the question, we need to go to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and look at verse 1 through 4. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Now, Deuteronomy means second law, and really what Deuteronomy is, it's a real a practical explanation of the law. That's what it is. It's here's the law, this is how it's put into practice. That's what Deuteronomy is. Deuteronomy means second, all right? So that's what's going on here. And, of course, Moses said in this passage that if the husband should find in his wife some uncleanness, he could put her away, giving her a writing of divorcement. The Mosaic legislation was to control divorce, to control a situation that become, could become messy because of a very 
low view of women and even the abuse of women who are being divorced for any reason and very unfair with very unfair treatment and of course endless suffering of of children so in Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1 through 4 there's about three general principles and I just want to share them with you and what I say about them is going to change next week not everything but some things And the reason why it's going to change is because Jesus gives the correct interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. But I'm not going there today. So let's look at it. This is more of what is understood by the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. Now, the main main points are true, but what comes under them? All right, here's the first one, that the first principle of Deuteronomy 24, this divorce is limited to certain cause or certain causes, Right? Deuteronomy 24, verse one, number 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. All right, let me just stop right there. So this man marries his wife. Then later they've been married for a while, and he finds some indecency in her. Now, this indecency or this uncleanness has been said to be something vile, something dirty, something shameful, something inappropriate, some inappropriate conduct that possibly caused the husband to be embarrassed, to be disgraced, or to have some displeasure. Now, at the first reading, it may seem that it's not adultery because if it were adultery, the penalty of adultery would be death, right? like it says in Leviticus 20.10. Also, the husband had to prove it and establish it before witnesses. So the first principle is it's limited to certain causes. Second principle is if a husband divorced his wife, he must give her a bill of divorcement. It says in verse number one also, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of out from his house. So here, this is, was commanded to protect the woman, to prove that she had been dismissed according to the law of Moses. Now, again, seemingly not because of unfaithfulness, but because of some uncleanness. Now, this was a civil law for tolerance and the prevention of a greater evil, such as to prevent a hard-hearted husband to abuse her or to have violence towards her or even to murder her. It was given for the prevention of violence and bloodshed. So she was released from the marriage, but not for immorality, which causes defilement, but for some uncleanness discovered after the man and the woman were married. So the second principle being, if the man divorced his wife, he must give her a bill of divorcement. Now, a bill of divorcement did mean that he was giving her uh, something that made her uh, legally leave the home where she would not uh, come under any kind of persecution because she had that certificate. A third general principle in verse two to four would be that the man who gave his wife a bill of divorcement, he also 
was allowed, was not allowed to marry her again. Look at verse number two. It says, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. Verse three, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. Now, why is she defiled? Well, not today. Next week we'll learn that. It says this, then, for this is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. All right, so, saying that in the mind of the Pharisees and the mind of the religious leaders, what they were teaching is significant because they, they were clamping on one particular phrase that the religious teachers seemed to take this phrase and expand it, all right? And if you notice in verse 1, one again, let's look at that, Deuteronomy 24.1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. All right, now, since the term indecent is rather vague, it lent itself to two diverse interpretations, two schools of thought. Now, of course, uncleanness in the Old Testament could refer to religious uncleanness where uh, somebody could be involved with idolatry or some sin. It could refer to ceremonial uncleanness where someone would have contact with an unclean animal some kind of food they shouldn't be eating, or a person. It could be physical uncleanness, where it could be that maybe the woman couldn't give that particular man children. Or it could be bodily emissions, or leprosy, or contact with the dead. There are a multitude of things that would make someone unclean, or indecent. Now, the two schools of thought were the Shamites, who were conservative, and they held that only uncleanness of gross character according to the law could be grounds for divorce. In other words, there's no divorce for them. And then the Hillelites, they were the liberals. They recognized a number of reasons for divorce, even the most trivial reason as burning the toast or burning the the bread, the man, I don't know. They believed anything unseemly in the eyes of the husband constituted an uncleanness, which, be, which would be a ground for divorce. In other words, divorce virtually on any grounds. All right, now what school do you think was the most popular? All right, it was the Hillelites, the, the liberal group, all right, all right, because Rabbi Hillel, that were where it came from, died 20 years before Christ. And as a result, his teaching was already synthesized into the teaching of the Pharisees and the religious leaders and already woven very deeply into the fabric of societies and into the minds of the disciples. Can't forget that. So then divorce was rampant in, Jer- in Judaism. It was everywhere. 
And some of the Jews even boasted that God had given them special privilege of divorcing their wives for any reason whatsoever that was part of the benefit of being a Jew. So the Pharisees were trying to pit Christ up against one of these schools of thought and public opinion, religiously to get Jesus to oppose the majority view. And of course, so that he may alienate his, her, his prospective followers. And then it could be possibly politically against Herod, and maybe with the same results that John the baptizer received by being putting, putting him in prison uh, because he told Herod it was unlawful to have his brother's wife. So there was a lot of stuff going on here in what was going on in this particular dialogue. However, Christ could not be bitten by these snakes in the grass. He completely ignored giving any credence to their views, which he always does. Instead, what does he do? Instead, he appeals to an authority that had to be reckoned with. And what authority is that? The word of God itself. It's always go back to the word of God, right? Find out what it says. Now, specifically, what Moses taught in Genesis or in the book of of beginnings, what Moses taught neither gave command nor liberty to anything anybody wanted to do. It was very restrictive. In fact, this is how the Lord starts it off. The Lord gives the original plan. So this is what the Lord taught. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 5. Now, before I read that, the Lord Jesus Christ was correcting a false interpretation of a perversion of this law. And this is how he starts off. But Jesus said to them in verse 5, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Verse 6, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So what does the Lord do here? The Lord gives the original blueprints for marriage to his audience, and then specifically to his disciples. And if we think about the original blueprints of marriage, it includes at least three things about the marriage relationship. Three things. Here's the first thing. The first thing is this, that marriage is a relationship whereby the husband and the wife are rendered one flesh, not two. The two become one. Now, that becomes very significant and important. For it says, for this reason, a man shall leave father and mother. They depart from the authority of their father and mother, and they now are cleaved or cemented to their wife. They become one and no longer two. So God, in other words, has not changed his mind concerning divorce. He hates it. And through the Malachi the prophet, he declared that he hates his divorce because a man who divorces his wife overwhelms her with cruelty. In Malachi, it said simply this, and what did 
that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit. Let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. And he repeats that twice in Malachi. So divorce is the violent wrenching apart of that which is meant to be indissoluble. Therefore, let not man put asunder what God has joined. In other words, it is impossible to try to make one thing two things without doing violence to its unity. And what happens in divorce is that uh, when men, a man and woman separate, it does violence to the oneness that God intended in marriage. So this is God's original tension in marriage before the fall of man into sin, before man, man's heart was hardened. And so the second The second thing that is included in the marriage relationship is the marriage is a permanent relationship. In verse number 9 of Mark 10, it says, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. See, in other words, marriage is God's work. And when God designed it originally, he designed it to be permanent. One man, one woman, two becoming one. It's supposed to be in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, till death do you part, is it not? See, it's not till divorce court do part us. It's not till midlife crisis do part us. It is not till something better comes along do part us. And it's not, let's not get married at all. Let's just live together. See, they think, those who want to cohabitate, that, hey, if I don't get involved with marriage at all, then there's no commitment, then I'm not in trouble at all. But the only problem is, is they're messing with fire, and they will burn in ways they would not expect, because the Bible says in Hebrews, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators, those who have sex before marriage, and adulterers, those who have sex in marriage with someone else, God will judge. So God takes this particular institution super serious, and we ought to too, but the world's not taking it serious anymore. And that's the point. And the disciples, if they have a wrong view of what the Old Testament says about it, they're not taking it as they ought to take it with a certain level of seriousness. So the problem is in our text, hard-heartedness, that is a person who does not want to obey God's design. In verse number 5 again, it says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. So to think of marriage as some sort of probationary experiment, which is if it works out, fine. If not, that's too bad. We tried, is a twisted and incorrect way, of course, and perverted way of looking at this serious institution of marriage. That the Lord's disciples are those who are to look upon marriage as an irrevocable, indissoluble, and soluble and permanent union that was a union 
that they nor someone else should not break. So we don't realize, though, how much we have been pushed into the pattern of the world's teaching on this subject. We have. All of us are affected by what the world and how the world views this institution. Hollywood has given us the impression that when we are bitten by the love bug, we get this feeling that we never had before called romantic love. Now, don't get me wrong. I I do believe that a couple who's following the word of God and following the Lord can be sweethearts the whole of their married life. But that just doesn't happen. That takes a lot, a lot of consideration and work on both the woman's and the man's part. So this feeling, romantic love, comes upon us with great abundance in which one thinks that they can go on and on living on this romantic love for all time, as the parent says to the daughter or the son, well, what are you going to live on? We're going to live on love. And, of course, you can see the smirk on the parent's face. Then after being married for a while, the reality of life settles in, and one day they discover that this mysterious love bug has flown away. Then they think, I don't love him anymore. I don't love her anymore the way I used to with that romantic love. It's not there any longer, they conclude. The only thing left is divorce court. That's where people go right away. So we have been fed a lie and have believed it. In fact, we have based our whole society on the romanticist concept of love and have rejected the biblical teaching about the subject. We have rejected the will of God on the whole matter of marriage. The romanticist concept of love is a delusion. It is, simply put, a bunch of baloney. Now, I am saying that, I'm not saying that two people don't fall in love with each other and love each other the rest of their life. But see, the problem is, what is the definition of love? A biblical concept of love is sacrificial and unselfish. It is a love that develops by the way we are committed to other people. Love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you probably should turn there very quickly, keep your hand in Mark, tells us it really, well, you know, the love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us is a way, what it tells us is a way of treating people. What is interesting in this particular section of scripture, there is not a romantic emotion found in that whole chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, there is instruction about how to deal with people. What does it say? Look at verse number 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Look what it says. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Verse 5, love does not act unbecomingly. 
It does not seek its own. That means it's unselfish. It is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. That means it doesn't mull over the same thing over and over again. Verse 6 does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. And then verse 7, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That kind of love never fails. And that is the kind of love that we are called to when we talk about the biblical love that a husband ought to have for his wife. All right. In other words, the sacrificial love of a husband for their wives and the submissive, respectful love a wife is to have for her husband. So marriage is not based so much upon love, and that, of course, may startle some of you, as it is based upon commitment. Commitment to believe that the marriage is a permanent institution. It is an insoluble relationship between two who have become one who are no longer two. See, until we have that commitment, we do not have fertile ground for the seeds of love that take hold and develop deep roots when two people are committed to each other with that kind of love. So if, if you... If you do not put oil and fill up the fluids in your car periodically, it is not going to run very well very long. If you take care of it, it will. If we have a marriage and don't put the oil of the Spirit into it and the Word of God into it and the commitment into it, it is not going to work or run very well very long. But if you do, it will. See, real love comes and is sustained through the Holy Spirit commitment a person has towards their spouse. So if you think of your marriage as a gift from God and realize that it is a permanent relationship that will not be broken, then there will be a distinct difference how you take care of your marriage. If you own a car and you had to keep that car for 40 years and there would be no other car to replace it, you would care for that car differently. Maybe this is a less favorable comparison, but some who have married take care of their stuff better than they do their marriages, and that is a shameful thing that needs to change. How differently we will care for our spouses when we are convinced and committed that marriage is a lifetime agreement and that we're going to stick in it through thick and thin, no matter what. For this reason, because it glorifies God. Because this is God's plan for us. This is what God intended. And what God intends is always right and good for everyone. And not only that, it is a testimony to the world who has taken this institution and stretched it and shaped it like Plato, like putty. And no one can even recognize it anymore. And brethren, let me just say this, that 
great wisdom and counsel and discernment and prayer needs to go in to the person that young lady and a young man that the person that you're going to be cemented to the rest of your earthly life, you need to take that into consideration, into serious consideration, who you're going to marry. Think about it before the love bug bites. Think about it in the realm of, can I be committed to this person? Can I give my whole self to this person? Can this person and I actually have what it takes? And believe me, I do not see and... Experts say that uh, people who have the least in common attract each other. That's not true. The people with the most in common attract each other and stay in a marriage with each other. You have to have things in common. You can't just have certain feelings that are going on at a particular time determine whether you're going to spend the rest of your life with this individual. There must be much thought in fact, young people, go to your parents. Go to the people that, in the church that you could get good counsel from and ask them and get them to know that person so they can make a pretty good decision and help you with it. Because sometimes um, the, kind, the kind of counsel that goes into somebody who falls in, quote, un, in love is not good. And it ends up many times in disaster and divorce. So see, the marriage relationship is a permanent relationship. That's how God designed it. And then thirdly, the marriage is a holy relationship. It is a holy relationship. Jesus says in verse number 5, but Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. Now, that commandment was written because men's hearts towards their wives were getting very, very hard. And so if they interpreted that statement very loosely, if I find something in her I don't like, she's out of here. She's out of here like Vladimir, all right? All right, I'm getting rid of her because she doesn't meet my criteria of what I want. That's hard-heartedness. That is not biblical love. See, because of the hardness of the Israelites' hearts, Moses allowed them to put away their wives. Sometimes we forget what it is that causes divorce. The Bible makes it very clear. The reason for divorce is sin. That's the reason. The sin of selfishness, the sin of anger and hostility unresolved, the sin of lovelessness, the sin of lack of respect, the sin of and unappreciativeness and thankfulness, the sin of pride and unkindness and unforgiveness, the the sin of verbal and physical and emotional abuse, the sin of lying and dishonesty, the sin of seeking our own instead of of our partner's well-being, and, of course, the sin of our text, the sin of adultery. All these sins and more drive people apart. That is not God's intention, nor does it please him. See, God's intention is to stay in your marriage and to work it out. See, it is only Christ who by his shed blood can rid us of sin 
to bring people together again. Sometimes we forget that God's highest purpose for us in this world is not that we should be happy. Before we can be happy, we must be holy. God's first purpose for us in this world is that we might be holy in order that we might be happy. Holiness comes first. Obedience comes first. Maybe there's, there's no better place for a man and a woman, two sinners becoming one to be sanctified, that's set apart to be made holy than in the marriage relationship. Maybe that's the best place for it to happen. There's never any true and lasting happiness without holiness. So, in other words, God is at work in our marriages. But too easily, we want to flee from the situation. We are too ready to take all the rough edges we all bring into the marriages and run away with them. God says, no. He is at work in our lives And there are some rough edges in our lives right now that God is using your spouse to rub down. That's what sanctification is. And it hurts. And you feel like running, but don't run. Give yourself to it. Because God is using it to make you holy. But he's also using it to make your marriage become a picture of how Christ loves the church. He's doing it so your marriage becomes what you think or you thought it could never be. Only Christ can do that. So see, Christ is the answer for all of us to have marriages that specifically and definitely reflect the character of God and how Christ loves the church. I know sometimes you can't believe that, but that is true. And so therefore... I believe that Christians should not even have divorce in their dictionary. It should, you should go home today and cut it out of your dictionary. You should get it out of your vocabulary. You should never fling that word around like it's something that you have taken out of your scabbard and it's a sword for you to get your way. You should never think about it like that. If you get God's view on things, it's going to change because marriage is the most serious institution that God has given a man and a woman and the most intimate relationship a man and woman can have on this side of eternity. So we ought to take it seriously for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to take it seriously. And one way to do that, of course, I mentioned some of those ways, is we need to get back to the original blueprints. All right? We are no longer two. We're one. So if I try to harm my spouse, I'm harming myself. And if they try to harm me, we're, they're, harming, we're, they're harming each other. They're har- See, the thing, that's it. it's like pointing a gun at yourself, thinking you're pointing it at someone else. You're one. You're a unity. You need to work together like that. And thank the Lord, by the word of God and his church and his spirit, he gives us everything we need to do that. So our marriages could be what they ought to be. Now, I'm going to leave it right there, all right? Next week, I'm going to pick it up. We're going to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, and then we're going to see 
what are the reasons for divorce and remarriage next week? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the institution of marriage. Lord, if anybody's going to uphold the standard of this institution, it has to be your church because the government has given into the world and have made laws that make it hard to define what marriage is. And so, Lord, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We have your spirit, and we have your word. And so, Lord, I pray that our marriages would be a testimony against what everybody else is saying and doing with this institution. And I pray, Lord, because I know, because you created us in your image, that everyone desires to have a good marriage who's married and who's going to be married. They want a strong marriage. They want to love their wives as men. And women want to be respectful and love their wives in that way. I know, Lord, that parents want to have children, and they want their children to love you and serve you. They want, even as they grow old, to have grandkids, to see them grow and also come to know Christ. Lord, so there's many things that are so important about the family, and we also know, Lord, historically, when the family falls apart, so does the nation. So I pray, Lord, that you would remind us often of your standard and what you said in the beginning. So, Lord, we can think of those things in our marriage and that we can grow with a committed love that puts all the principles into practice so our marriages can be strong and enduring and permanent. And, Lord, could last the rest of our days and even be a testimony, an example, a pattern, and influence to the young people that are looking upon our lives and looking for some example to follow. I pray that we would be able to offer them a good example of what a marriage ought to be. And we know, Lord, in doing that, it's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be the direction that the Spirit of God takes us to make it the best it can be in this sinful world. And so I praise you and and thank you for this time in the Word of God. Continue to remind us of these truths during the week and bring us back next time as we look at the rest of this passage. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Okay.